Hello and welcome to Lightworks, a podcast where we sit down and discuss various aspects of creativity within music production with artists, musicians, and scholars. I'm your host, Zach Diaz, and today we're talking to Joe Schloss. Dr. Joe Schloss is a scholar, writer, and lecturer who studies the way people use art, especially music, to develop new perspectives on social, cultural, and political issues. His first book, Making Beats, The Art of Sample-Based Hip-Hop, was a study of hip-hop's musical aesthetic based on over 10 years of study within hip-hop producers. He holds a PhD in ethnomusicology from the University of Washington and currently teaches at the City University of New York and Princeton University. I've been a huge fan of Joe's writing for, for years now. Um, his book, Making Beats, is probably one of my favorite books. Highly recommended if you haven't read it already. Um, and we just sat down for a little bit and just talked about hip-hop production since we're both hip-hop scholars and random ideas about music that we have. And yeah, it was just a nice conversation. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Joe. How's it going? Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. First thing I wanted to kind of talk about, um, so you've written several books on hip-hop. Um, just out of curiosity, kind of like what your sort of general music upbringing was kind of like growing up. So that's fun. You know, nobody's ever asked me that before. <laughs> um, I'm not sure why. I, I had a, my musical upbringing... I think in retrospect was unusual, but I didn't think about it at the time, which is basically, I, I really didn't have a musical upbringing. My, my parents are not particularly interested in music, which now that I'm older, I find a little odd. <laughs> like they didn't really listen to music around the house. Um, even when I go home now, I'm like, hey, let's put on some music. Like it would never <laughs> occur to them otherwise. Um, I have no idea why that's the case. Um, my theory is because they both grew up in New York, uh, when they moved out of the city, like silence is something that is very valuable to them in a way that isn't valuable to me. <laughs> but, um, but so I wasn't raised like in an environment in, in the home where I was like getting a musical education. Um, I did have music lessons. I played um, trumpet shortly for, for a brief period when I was a kid. And then I, uh, when I was a teenager, I got into music on my own. Um, oh, and also, I, I, we, you know, we had music class in school and I never liked it. And that's, that's something that we could come back to. It's something that I, I just, I had always, based on that upbringing, my exposure to music was like through the general culture, um, not really through my parents, um, but through through the general culture and through like formalized children's music education. And I was just like, I, there's nothing interesting to me about music based on based on that <laughs> um, experience. And it was only when I was a teenager and I started to um, identify with specific forms of popular music and the communities that produce them. And I started to think like, oh, this is there could really be something here. And obviously there was, because I ended up pursuing that for the rest of my life. But it does make me go back and think about that, about why now that I'm older, I know that I really love m music in general, the idea of music and very specific musical communities and practices. So 
what was it about the educational system that led me in such a weird direction? And I mean, it's not something I spend a lot of time thinking about, but it does make me, as an educator, it may, it really makes me conscious of how, how much um, the value of subjects to a student hinges on the way it's presented and not so much in, in some intrinsic quality of the, of the subject itself. And I think that now that I think about it, that does connect to um, a lot of things that you probably want to talk about in terms of like um, Western European art music and how musicology education has historically in the, in the United States and Europe been centered around that musical form as like the norm and everything else is judged on how well it fits into that, that structure and everything. I do think that that's, and the ideologies behind that. In other words, just to be very blunt about it, um, we don't need to explain why you should be interested in classical music. It's self-evidently valuable. And I think now that I'm older, I'm in a position to like really think about why that's a problematic ideology and I can explain it to people. But I think as a kid, I, I, on some intuitive level, I was just like, eh. <laughs> it just, it didn't, it didn't touch me in that level. And it wasn't apparent to me that, that I would become a better person automatically by studying classical music or something like that. And, and it was part of it, I think to me, was a natural kind of um what's the word i'm looking for um i'm just kind of a natural contrarian in certain ways i'm a nice person but i don't accept things that people tell me as being true just because they tell me especially people in an institutional setting so always when a teacher told me like this is valuable just shut up and learn it that I all I, I never accepted that, and that in to this day, that's a big motivator. In fact, behind my teaching, because um, I don't want to do that to anybody else. Um, I, I I always, whenever I teach something, I'm always like, "Here's why you should care." That's the first. That's the first part of any any education. I'm not going to assume that that it's self evident that you should care. I'm not going to assume that you should care because I say you should care. I, I feel like it's my responsibility as an educator to explain why this is useful knowledge to you. And I think now that I'm saying this, I think a lot of that comes from my resentment at people not doing that for me when I was younger and particularly around music, because then later on when I went back, I was like, there's so much here that is so meaningful to me. Why didn't you just tell me that? Like, for example, like I'm a good guitar player. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of where my kind of musical energies have been. Um, but like I said, I took trumpet lessons for like two years when I, when I, like when I was like in fifth and sixth grade or something. And, um, and I gave it up because I had never heard of jazz or Miles Davis or anything like that. And I always thought like, man, if somebody had just explained to me that jazz is cool, I would still be playing trumpet today. <laughs> like, I, but no, or even what improvisation was. I remember, this is so funny. I was thinking, oh, I'm not going to have anything to talk about. And you just asked me one question. I'm going on this huge rant. I hope that's, feel free to interrupt me if I get too long-winded. But um, I remember when I was in, in the band room in junior high school, this kid, Nate Hurlbut, explained to us what improvisation was. Not the teacher, just another kid in the class. He was a saxophone player who had been taking private lessons. And he's like, you know, in certain circumstances, you can just play whatever you want. 
And we were all like, what? Yeah, no, I had literally never heard of improvisation before. And then at, once I knew that, I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. But it, it, it reflected, even at that age, I think, it, uh, authority, institutional authority, and a kind of level of cultural authority of like, I'm not entitled to make my own music. I have to respect people who really know what they're doing and make the music that they tell me to do. And, and I, and I, I, I that has, was the message I was getting. But once I realized that I didn't have to accept that message, that's when I became interested in music, basically. Um, that there's more to music than just doing what other people tell you to do. And um, so that was the initial part of my music upbringing and that, that um, realizing how much had been hidden from me and how, how much it really didn't have to be hidden. Like, you know what's cool about music? whatever you like about it that's what's cool about music and w let's start there and then let's see where we can go <laughs> you know what i mean so uh and just because some european guy in in 1723 made up a rule that doesn't mean that you have to follow it who is he you know what i mean <laughs> so so um yeah so well, i sort of uh, that that was the initial part and that I still carry with me, obviously. Um, but then when I started having musical experiences, going to concerts and stuff like that, then I started to see this whole other side of music of like, it can bring people together. It can transform your consciousness. You can learn about other people's cultural perspective um, through listening to their music and talking to them about it. Um, you, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Uh, and I should... Um, look into that it's fascinating it's just funny because like i i kind of had a similar experience with public education especially in relation to music education you know because i was a, a band geek you know i was in marching band and all that um and i was a huge band geek like i just thought that was like the most fun thing and, and like in bridges but yeah i loved doing that and i did it all through high school and college but um i remember like especially when i was like you know 13 14 15 when you get, you know most I don't know, young men get into hip hop, you know, like I wanted to learn drum breaks and I wanted to like learn how to make beats. And I was just like, I downloaded like a cracked copy of FL studio and I, I would sneak into the percussion room and just like get on the drums. And I, I would get in trouble. Cause then my band teacher would, would just be like, you don't play the drums. You play the saxophone. Like in retrospect, I was like, oh, that really broke my heart. <laughs> like, why, why would you stop somebody from playing a musical instrument yeah. that they wanted to play? That's exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was just kind of like, okay, I guess I played saxophone, which I did like, and I did a whole degree in it and still play that professionally. But like, there was a whole other window of stuff that I was like, Ooh, Hey, can I do this? And then a lot of the sort of the attitudes of that was like, no. And I think it's getting better. I still have friends that are, that teach public school that are saying, Oh, I'm doing this and that. And I'm like, Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, it's going in different directions. Certainly, you know, it's a common experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think there, there, and, and it, to me, it's really, it's not about individual people. Um, because individual people who love music just love music. Like, I have a lot of friends that are classical musicians and they're not like that at all. <laughs> they're just like, I just like, I just like this music. It doesn't mean that it's better than any other music or anything like that. It's just what I like. Um, but that, that attitude, I think, reflects certain ideas about cultural hierarchy and the value of different cultures and things like that 
particularly when I was in school, um, that were just taken for granted. And it was the same with when they, they taught us literature. It was like, you should read this book because it's a classic. Now shut up. Like, I don't need to tell you why it's a classic. Just read it. And so many of those books I hated. And then I went back later on and read them again. And I was like, oh, this is a great book. Why, for these specific reasons, why didn't they just tell me that? And then I would have appreciated it. Um, you know, uh, uh, but it just reminded me too, the thing, what, uh, what I was going to say about um, the trumpet. So I only played it for two years and then, you know, I got into jazz and then, you know, hip hop that sampled jazz and stuff like that. Uh, um, only really a few years later, like when I was in college. Um, and I always regretted that I had given up the trumpet. And then during the quarantine, this is so dumb. During the quarantine, I was like, you know, you could just buy a trumpet, right? So I just bought a trumpet and taught myself to play it again. And it was really interesting coming from that perspective because number one, this was this amazed me. I was like, all right, now I know about music theory. So the main thing is just learning the, te the technique of getting a sound out of the instrument. But once I can get a sound out of it, I know what I'm doing intellectually. I just have to know how to apply it to this specific instrument. And the second I picked it up, I could play it. Like it's been 40 years since I touched a trumpet. And even then I was like 10 years old. Somehow my mouth remembered like the tonguing technique and all that kind of stuff. I couldn't believe it. Um, so, oh, and but this is another example of what um, uh, uh, this sort of the rules and you must follow the rules. Of course, you know, trumpet is a transposing instrument, but my goal was basically to like add horn lines to, uh, like funk and rock guitar stuff that I'm playing. So I was like, this transposing is going to be just such a huge pain in the ass. And I was like, why don't I just learn to play the notes in the standard tuning? Like, you're not supposed to do that with a trumpet, but who cares? Nobody, <laughs> I'm, I'm the only person that even knows I'm doing this. <laughs> Why should I feel obligated to follow this rule? So when I play an E on the trumpet, it's an actual E, <laughs> as opposed to like what a trumpet player, the way a trumpet player would think about it. And if I need to transpose it, like if for some reason, and I, I doubt this will ever happen, but if for some reason I have to like, I become a good enough trumpet player that I would want to play a chart, then I'll transpose it back in the other direction. But for what I'm doing, there's no point in doing that. And like, so that's an example of what I'm talking about. Like I'm somebody who has a, a musical intention and I'm trying to gather the best tools available to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. And why should I follow some weird rule that somebody else made up? And, and that's a personal thing for me, but it's also something that I, pers I find so empowering that I also try to present that to people when I'm teaching about any kind of music. I'm like, a particular group of people in a particular time and place chose to do it this way for, for reasons of their own. Um, if you, you know, if you're trying to accomplish a similar thing to what they're trying to accomplish, then you, I, I would suggest you follow that rule and see where it takes you. But if if you're not, then there's no reason why you have to. It doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> exactly. You know. I did my, my bachelor's in, in saxophone. You're from Texas originally, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you go to North Texas? Uh, Stephen of Austin State. 
Okay, because I just for some reason Texas is like the the home of saxophone education, isn't it? <laughs> it seems to be, yeah. <laughs> but it was very strict, like classical repertoire, you know. And I, I'm all extremely thankful for that. But it was very much like of the sort of Western art canon, but with saxophone, or at least what it's weird because a lot of like modern saxophone stuff is very like atonal contemporary art music type stuff. It's not really in my my cup of tea. It, I was just never comfortable like playing that stuff because it was very much like you have to fit this very specific scene and aesthetic. And then when I left, I was just playing in like punk bands and ska bands and stuff. And then I was like, oh, this is just a sound machine, <laughs> you know, like as are all instruments. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a hunk of metal with holes <laughs> in it and I can do whatever I want, you know. And, you know, that's one of the that's one of my standard arguments when people say, um, and I'm sure you, I'd be interested here. I'm sure you have a whole range of standard arguments for this, too. Um, like when people say, oh, it's not real music, it's made, you're using a sampler, you're not using a real instrument. And one of my standard arguments is, you know, a piano is just a mechanical harp. So you could just, you know, it, well, you know if you like music that's made with a piano, that's just because you the, the person can't handle a real harp, right? <laughs> so um, nobody would accept that logic. But they do, they draw a line somewhere, but then you're, you know, anybody's entitled to draw a line between what they like and what they don't like, but that's just your personal opinion. There's no objective value to that. Totally. I think it was your first book, um, Making Beats. Was there a specific sort of event that like, inspired you to look at beat making academically? There was. And it's interesting because I was thinking, I don't, until now, basically, I never had a sense that there were generations of hip hop scholars, but I think I'm reaching a point where I'm, I, I would be naturally considered part of like the older generation of hip hop scholars, which is weird to me because in my mind, hip hop is young enough that it's not possible to have hip hop scholars. But I do think things have changed enough over that time, both in hip hop itself and in the scholarship that, um, I emerged from a different world than a, than a modern hip hop scholar would, which is interesting to me. I, I want to explore that a little bit. And I'm curious um, if you have thoughts on that uh, from your perspective. But yeah, it's interesting, like, especially with, with your, with making beats, I was literally at um, an event in London not too long ago. And then I was talking to someone outside um, the venue and he said he was doing a master's in, I think like popular music studies. And he was doing a, dissertation on on sampling and then he was just asking around he's like oh what are some good books and then someone like by me was like oh schloss is making beats is really good and i was like i was gonna say that <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to it well thank you what's weird to me now and i think i wrote this in the new introduction is that that's now like a portrait of a bygone era like almost nothing in that book is really true anymore <laughs> which is kind of cool in a way like i that wasn't what i was thinking at the time but it's like you can't really go back in time and do those kind of interviews. I mean, you can interview those same people, you know, the, the ones that are around and, but they, they might not remember things the way that they were thinking about them at that time. So I'm kind of, that's kind of a new, that's part of it that I'm proud of that I didn't ex expect to be um, proud of. But what I was going to say is at that time, deciding to do that, part of deciding to do that was to kind of um, bet, on the future of hip hop scholarship because people, so I, so let me uh, 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 back up. I started getting into hip hop uh, when I was in college, which was in the mid late eighties. Um, 
in fact, I can pinpoint it to spring of 1987 because uh, my friend Dan and I chipped in to buy the first Public Enemy album when it came out because neither one of this, neither one of us could afford to spend the money on on a record and uh, hip hop wasn't being played on the radio and there was no internet, so we didn't even know what it sounded like. That was part of it too. We had read about Public Enemy and we were like, this sounds like something that we would be into, but. I'm not sure I want to spend eight dollars on music that I've never heard just 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 to be disappointed or whatever. So we chipped in and bought it, and and we we traded the album back and forth for a while. I believe he still has it. Um, I got a cassette of it because I would rather listen to it in a in a boombox or a Walkman at that time anyway. But um, so I know that I got into hip hop in spring of '87. Um, and that was when, you know, obviously that was when sampling was just starting and, and hip hop was, you know, this is basically the birth of new school hip hop. So it was, things were really changing very quickly and it was really exciting. And it, it combined a lot of stuff that I was already into, uh, namely really aggressive politics and, um, and funk music. And those, both of those were things that I, that I, I was really interested in. Um, I was very political. I still am. Um, and I was also at a moment when I was like 18 or however old I, 18 or 19, um, coming from a very white suburban environment, um, suddenly in college being exposed to all, all these issues and historical, um, information about race that I had never been exposed to before. So hip hop at that moment was just perfect for me. It had everything that I was interested in stylistically, musically, in terms of its content, um, and so I just I just fell in love with with hip hop at that point. Um, but I never I did not. I, I mean, I think I, I wrote a couple papers about it um, when I was in when I was in college. But even in those days, even people who were um, like professors of black music um, and researchers and scholars of black music didn't take hip hop very seriously. Um, and so it was even even in the context of like taking a black music class to write a term paper on hip hop was kind of viewed as a little bit weird. Like it, it was not viewed as something to be taken that seriously. Um, it's funny because I just um, I saw Archie Shep uh, perform at the uh, Charlie Parker Jazz Festival like a month ago. Um, it's the end of August. Yeah, almost exactly uh, a little over a month ago. And I took a class with him in college. He used to teach at University of Massachusetts. And I had taken a class with him in college called Revolutionary Concepts in Afro-American Music. So imagine looking at a course catalog and seeing Revolutionary Concepts in Afro-American Music taught by Archie Shep. It's like, how could you not take that class? Um, and uh, But I remember he, he went in on hip hop in that class several times. Basically, it was interesting. His thing was, which in retrospect, I can understand from his point of view, not that it was, he didn't criticize it, as I remember, for being melodically simple. He criticized it for being rhythmically simple, which, <laughs> which was at that time, because I think all he had heard was like old school hip hop and probably just something like Rapper's Delight, which still has complexities to it. But, but I think from his point of view, coming from a, like an avant-garde jazz perspective, he was like, there's not much here for me. And I, 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 in retrospect, I can understand how he felt that way, but I, that I was a little bit like, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, so I got into it in, in, in college and then, um, 
I became interested in ethnomusicology as a field, and I was very interested in Indian music, South Indian Carnatic music. And I actually uh, went to India for a couple months to study um, there, which, um, and I had expected, uh, and then I, I applied to grad school for, for uh, ethnomusicology. I expected that to be my main area. Um, and then when I was getting ready, so I went to University of Washington, yeah, I went to University of Washington for grad school in Seattle. And when I was getting ready to write my master's thesis, basically my whole committee left and went to other institutions, which is a thing people don't realize happens in grad school. Whenever somebody's planning to go to grad school, I always tell them about that because nobody ever anticipates that. Like I'm going to grad school to work with this, with this uh, famous scholar and then they get another job and you're just stuck there, you know? So, um, uh, you know, there's nothing you can do about that, but it's something to think about when you're when you're preparing for grad school. Um, so anyway, that happened to me. The people that I was going to work with on Indian music left, and I was kind of like at a crossroads. Like I got to figure out what I want to do. But the other thing that had happened is when I moved to Seattle because I was already into hip hop, I started going to hip hop shows, connecting with people in the hip hop scene there, and it was the perfect size because it was small enough that you could actually know everybody at that time. Um, but big enough that it was its own thing. It wasn't just like five random people. So I got into that. I started writing for this uh, magazine called The Flavor, which is an underground hip hop magazine in Seattle and um, and sort of connected with people in the scene for that. Uh, and so then when my when my committee left and I couldn't do Indian music anymore, I was like, you know what? I should do hip hop because that's what I that's what I really care about. So I actually Nobody knows about this, but I wrote my master's thesis about freestyling. Um, this was the days when you had to actually get a master's degree before you got a PhD, which I think that just doesn't even exist anymore as far as I know. Like the idea that it, you were intending to get a PhD, but first you had to you had to write a master's thesis before you wrote your doctoral dissertation. Um, so and I'm not one of these people like I had to walk to school you know, five miles in the snow or whatever. It's like, if you can make the process more efficient, then by all means, make it more efficient. I have no desire to put people through a bunch of weird crap just because I had to go through it. But um, but anyway, I was looking for somebody to write about. So I wrote about freestyling. As far as I know, that was the first academic work that was ever written about freestyling and possibly the first academic work that was ever written about rapping from a musical standpoint. It was 95 that I finished it. Um, I don't know that for sure, but I haven't heard of anything earlier than that. Um, and that was what I was planning to develop that um, into my um, into my dissertation, which in retrospect would not have been very good <laughs> because I didn't have very much to say about it. Um, and I don't think I had a particularly uh, valuable perspective like I, I mean what i had to say i already said in my master's thesis in terms of like the nature of the way certain types of phrases um work rhythmically like in the in those days typically if you were freestyling you would start with a phrase like it's like that y'all and you don't stop you keep on to the break the dawn you had these little transitional phrases that allowed you to go from speak normal speech into rapping and those phrases are all set up to end at a certain point in the measure so that you have enough time to take a breath and then start freestyling and that that type of thing was really interesting to me like even people that were doing it i think at the time weren't thinking about it in terms of a musical structure but 
they they had sort of intuitively developed a format that facilitated this process in a very sophisticated way. So, but I said that in my master's thesis. So what else was I gonna say about that in the dissertation? Um, but I was hanging out with all these hip hop producers and they were all music nerds. And like to a degree that was unbelievable to me. And, and the actual thing that led me to write my dissertation was um, there was a, a uh, a big barbecue that somebody had. Uh, it was a it was a combination going away party for somebody that was moving to New York and a birthday party for one of the big DJs in the scene. So everybody just came. Everybody who was like kind of part of the scene just came to this barbecue, and I was hanging out at a picnic table talking to a bunch of um, hip hop producers, and they were arguing over a snare drum. They were like, it was like I don't even remember what it was, but it was on some. Uh, some record that was hot at that time this would have been like 96 um hot at the time and they were like oh yeah that's the snare from that jeff beck record and somebody else was like no it's not it's from this other record whatever and i was like holy crap these people listen <laughs> listen to this song and they recognized one snare drum where it came from like and again this is when people were like looking at hip-hop and being like yeah, they call it rap music. I call it crap music. Like thinking that was really clever. And it's like, oh, they don't know anything about music. They're unsophisticated. They're just stealing random stuff. And it was like really clearly not true. Like these were people that were extremely knowledgeable about music to the finest level of detail. And um, so I was like, I want to write about this. And nobody had ever written about it at that point. Um, and partially because... Uh, Nobody knew about it outside of the community, even other people in hip hop. Again, the, I mean, there was an internet, but it wasn't really the internet as we know it. And hip hop people certainly were not on the internet at that time. Um, and so that there, that there was this um, very sophisticated musical world that was only known to the people that were part of it. And that was intentional on their part too. Like they didn't want other people to, to know about it because a lot of what they were doing was technically illegal. Um, so that was a little bit of a hurdle in terms of writing about it, not wanting to, to put people in, 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 in a difficult situation, but, um, but also that it was so contrary to people's stereotypes about what hip hop actually was. I mean, I mean, it's basically the same stereotypes that people have now, which now that I think about it is, pretty pathetic that, that people have had the same stereotypes for 30 or more years, but that, um, you know, it's just a bunch of gangsters yelling and they don't know anything about music or whatever. Meanwhile, the people I was hanging out with were the exact opposite of that. And so hip hop producers were like music nerds like me, and I related to them on that level, but they were central to hip hop. It wasn't like, oh, I'm just latching on to these random nerdy guys because I feel an affinity for them because I'm a nerd too. It was, they were really legitimate hip hop people. And I felt like people should know that about hip hop, that, that, that that's part of it. Um, so that's why I became interested in it. It's interesting how like, I feel like, especially like really good, just sort of that upper echelon of like hip hop producers are almost like music librarians or something. 100%. You know, like I remember watching like an interview of, of Dilla and him just going through his record collection. And he was like, oh, yeah, side B of that Miles Davis record and track two. And there's that one little lick that I got from. And he just remembers that, like, has this encyclopedic knowledge, you know. 
in the book, I have a quote from my, from Jake One, who was my, by the way, was my student as an undergraduate, and then went on to be like one of the biggest producers in hip hop, uh, which was amazing. I think he was like 19 when I interviewed him or something. Um, that was also weird too, because I was his professor as a grad student, and I thought of myself as being much older because I was a grad student, he was an undergraduate. But now that I think about it, I'm only like five years older than him. Now that we're both old, uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem that strange. But anyway, um, his mentor um, was Supreme Will Rock, um, who I also interviewed for the book. Um, he wasn't using that name at the time. He was going by Mr. Supreme then. Um, but uh, uh, he tells a story about that, that he was hanging out uh, with Supreme, with Danny. And he mentioned a certain record and Danny knew the catalog number of it. Like he was like, oh yeah, I like such and such number. And he was like, oh yeah, that was uh, fantasy records 2347A. And he went into the, to the shelf and pulled out the record and he was right. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. That, that level that level of detail and knowing who played on every cut because that's part of digging too, or at least it was like, if you liked a drum track, you're like, Oh, who is the drummer? And let's find out some other stuff that that person played on, you know? And then there's that rabbit hole of like, Oh, who's the drummer? Oh, do they have their own records? Oh, they do have their own records. Oh, then someone played based on that. Who had their own. And it's just this constant, you know, rabbit hole that you don't, it just doesn't stop <laughs> your entire life, you know? And then you have a hundred thousand records and then it's, Right. <laughs> Before you know it. Absolutely. Um, so do you make or either through all your research and stuff or just even even today, do you make beats? Have you made beats? Like what about that process especially is really Yeah. Um I do in a kind of rudimentary way. It's not necessarily uh I, I wouldn't consider myself a producer or anything. Um and part of that is just the um Initially, so I started officially doing the research um, for the dissertation in 1998. And I felt like I needed to be able to make beats as part of the process. Um, but I couldn't afford a sampler at that time because I was a starving grad student. Um, and I regret that. I wish if I had it to do over again, I would like max out my credit cards and, and buy an MPC. Um, but at that time, I was being very conservative with money, um, and I think that was the wrong choice. I did get, I, I don't even remember what it was, it was a, whatever the cheapest Akai sampler was at that time, um, I could find out. I still have it in my closet somewhere, but it wasn't, it wasn't like an MPC, it just had like, it, you, could, you could load the sample, you could sample things, you could load the samples on a floppy disk and hit uh, the buttons, but they weren't really pads, they were just buttons. It was like an S9 or something. I don't know. So it was a couple hundred dollars. But, you know, an MPC in those days was like $1,700 or something. So that was like, that's like three months rent for me or more than three months rent for me at that time. So, um, so what I, I had a four track and a, um, and that sampler. And so I was able to loop stuff and like kind of trigger stuff, but there was no, um, sequencer or or any type of visual thing it was all just hearing and looping stuff so i made beats with that um then when the sp202 came out i got like basically my history has been a history of cheap samplers whatever was available at that time the sp202 um, i used that for a while um 
And then I got uh, like a low-end MPC um, controller um, that I use, and I use the MPC software with that. So it's basically very uh, uh, simple, old-school technology. Like I don't use a DAW or anything. Um, well, I mean, I guess technically the MPC software is a DAW, but like not like Pro Tools or anything. Um, so, but I'm very old school in my mentality too. So it's not, it's not a problem because my goals are very simple. So the fact that my tools are simple is not, is not that much of a problem. Um, but it's not, it's just something I do every now and then, um, when I feel like it, I'm not, I'm not, re I'm not really that serious about it at this point. Um, but, uh, yeah, but so I, I, I have made beats and, and, and I, I, like I said, it's interesting to me, and I, I haven't. It's not something I've thought about that much, but but since w I, I was thinking about the generational thing, us talking, and and like how, like to me, like like that that, that it's been long enough that, like you said, like with lo-fi and everything, there's there's like a nostalgia for the golden era of hip hop and for those like boom bap beats. Mm -hmm. That was the next question I was going to ask. Is sort of like, what are you thinking? Because those like sp202 like really those like real cheap late 90s early 2000s samplers that's very much in vogue right now at least where especially where i live like in bristol and like the like that sort of because a lot of there's a lot of like old school drum and bass heads that like they want to have just the cheapest crappiest sampler <laughs> just to make the nastiest sounding you know drum break or whatever well it, it's it's interesting to me for a couple reasons um, the main one is I've seen in my lifetime, a lot of like kind of revival movements or nostalgia, like musically musical revivals or kind of nostalgically informed musical genres. Like, uh, you know, we're trying to get back to what people were doing in the past, either in a very explicit way or just kind of implicitly. Um, but this is the first time that I've been old enough where, I was part of it the first time and now I'm seeing it come back around again. And it's really disorienting because like, to me, I'm just, I'm doing the same thing as I always did. And I'm listening to it the same way I always listen to it, but there's an extra level to it now of people who have like developed a, a consciousness about like what the whole thing is and is supposed to be, um, that they're trying to live up to um so like for example like i used cheap samplers uh because i couldn't afford an expensive sampler i wasn't like going for anything i was just that was just what was available and like same with with vinyl like people have this kind of vinyl fetishism that is i have a vinyl fetishism too but it's different <laughs> like to me vinyl is a medium for music and it works in certain ways as a medium uh, that and those ways are, are useful to me. But I grew up with vinyl, so it's not like I don't have like a romanticism around vinyl as a thing. It's just that's just where the music is and, and, and the way that, that I listen to that music. And it's interesting to me that there, there are people now and it makes perfect sense to me. I'm not saying they're wrong, but that are like the idea of vinyl is something that's very that's very valuable. And like I saw a thing where it was like like a vinyl of the month club or something like that. And they're like, we'll send you one vinyl record every month, but it's like, we're not going to tell you what it is. Like you would sign up for this just to get a vinyl record, 
but it doesn't matter what the actual record is. <laughs> like, that's very weird to me. Um, but I, I mean, I understand it because I've been that way about other things, but it's just, it, it's not my attitude towards, towards, uh, towards records. Um, but the, the reality of the situation has changed too. It's not, it's not like, oh, I, because this is part of what I was thinking about too. The, the way we thought about it in those days was based on the context that, that we were living in. So it doesn't make any sense to say that people who are living now should follow the rules that we followed then because they're not in the same situation we were in. It's just, like, it's weird to me when people are gatekeepers like that. Like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to take something old and mess around with it until it does what you want it to do. There's, there's no reason why you should follow the rules that we used to follow because you're just not in that situation. If, if I was younger, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now because I wouldn't have had the experiences that I'm, I'm having. And, and that's how it should be, you know? Um, so, but as somebody in that situation, it is still weird to me because superficially it does seem like the same thing, but it's just not. Like, for example, even if you wanted to, you couldn't dig for records the way that we used to dig for records then because the, the entire nature of the situation is different be, be directly because of the Internet, um, but also because of the information that's out there now. Like you could. And I think I wrote about this in the new introduction in the, in the 90s. You could go into any random record store and find like all these classic breakbeat records for like two dollars. And that was part of what was exciting about going digging. Like, who knows what I could find? I could find this, you know, whatever. It, it, I mean, they weren't even really rare records then. It's like, oh, ooh, Bob James record, two bucks. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, um, David Axelrod record, four bucks, you know. Um, and, and so because hip hop people were looking for things that were totally different from what everybody else was looking for. And rock people, like there was an assumption at that time that, different types of music had an inherent value and everybody agreed on what that value was. It was a very, what we would now call like a rockist view that, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, that, that those were the people that owned record stores and those were the people that sold records. So, you know, your rare Beatles record is worth a million dollars, but some random like fusion record from the seventies is worth nothing because why would somebody want to buy an old, Bob James record with Nautilus on it. Like that, that was the thing, like as from a rock perspective, they were like, that's a $1 record. Nobody wants that. So it was the fact that hip hop people were looking for completely different things from what everybody else was looking for that was massively undervalued that made it interesting because you could go around and just find amazing things for no money. And, and that was cool on a practical level, but it was also exciting because you were like going on a treasure hunt. That, I mean, it's probably still possible for that to happen, but it's not like an everyday part. Where I live in Bristol, there's a record fair that happens every couple months that like, it's literally like the entire, um, this entire just convention center, just like four floors of just like record stalls. And I have spent just probably eight to 12 hours just, just digging and digging. And it's like one of the few places that I've, I can, you know, People and people come from all around. I mean, there's tons of stuff like that in London because there's everything in London. But like, yeah, people come all around from it. And like, yeah, like I had this one moment where it was like, I found this Singers Unlimited record where it was like, just this like jazz vocal, 
Um, and it was the, it had the sample from uh, Slum Village uh, players, the, 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 the Claire sample or whatever. And I just lost my freaking mind. I was like, oh my God, it's the record. You know, and it was just sitting in the back and it was like three pounds. And I was like, oh, yes, yes. You know, I never, and like I was with my girlfriend at the time. She's like, what, 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 what? And I was like, it's, it's the thing from the thing. And the, it's, it's too complicated to explain. Let me show you. This. Uh, yeah, sorry. So this is not video, otherwise everybody's looking at my butt. Um, where is it? Uh, here. So I remember buying this record in the nineties. What's the seven ninety-nine? There's a lot of samples on this, but uh, uh, the uh, Lauren's dance, right? Is that incredible? electric piano sample and um i had been looking for it for years and i just i happened to come across this it's like this is almost i mean not mint condition but it, there's some ringware but it's really good condition for eight bucks and like part of it in those days too was like keeping a straight face that's what reminded me is like i was in my mind i was like oh my god but then i was like if i look too excited the guy's going to charge me more money for it so i just have to buy the record and walk out of the store and keep my mouth shut well, that's the thing too, like with, with the internet and just with so much stuff that's on the internet with like, there's so much just like sample archives and stuff where I've looked at, you know, I've been in record stores and it's like a record I want, but then it's like 40 bucks and I'm like, I'll just look it on, on YouTube later. <laughs> like, you know, I can't. And, and, and that takes the, I mean, right. That's a perfect example of what I was talking about because why wouldn't you, like you, you wouldn't say like. I refuse to listen to this record on YouTube because I want to keep my hip hop purity or something like that. That would be ridiculous. But now that it's accessible, for example, like that original song that it, I don't remember if I said it because I forgot that it wasn't video, but it's Idris Muhammad, Power of Soul, the song uh, Lawrence Dance. I had never heard the whole song just played out. Um, and there was no way to hear it if you didn't have the record at that time. That was part of the excitement of finding those records too. It's like, I know somebody sampled this, but I don't know what the original song sounded like because I've never heard it. The only way to hear it was to find the record. Um, but now you can just hear it by going to YouTube. So again, I'm not mad at that. It's good that people have more access, but it's just that that enjoyment doesn't exist anymore. So I'm just curious, especially just with, because you teach as well, um, just kind of like what are some things that maybe you've noticed uh, in just the generations that you've seen and maybe interacted with students just what parts of like i guess either beat making culture or hip-hop culture have you noticed like change the most um good or bad or anywhere in between you know there's a couple things you know it's interesting and i never thought about it until this moment but i've been teaching about hip-hop continuously for over 20 years like when when i was mentioning when i was teaching in grad school so since about 97 or so. Um, so I have actually seen the students' attitude change over that time. Um, but I never thought about it until you just asked me that question. <laughs> um, well, the one thing that's, that always stands out to me is recently I've had, I asked students like why they're interested in the class and why they took the class. And I've had several students tell me, I'm taking this class because my parents told me I needed to learn more about hip hop. And that was a new one for me. <laughs> At least it was the first time and it's become a trend now. Um, 
So that makes me feel old. But uh, I think what, what, what I, there's a couple things that, that stand out to me when I think about it. Um, one is I've been very impressed with how knowledgeable the students are about older hip hop. Um, particularly when I think about what the time frame is, like they're very familiar with 90s hip hop, at least the, the students that would take a class like the one I teach. Um, but now when I think about it, it's like that was 25, you know, it was 20 to 30 years ago. That would be the equivalent of when I was in college, uh, you know, somebody knowing about music from like the late 50s, early 60s. So the idea that the whole class knows about that is, 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 is I think is, is is healthy and is impressive to me. Um, the other thing is that people have a lot more access as practitioners now, particularly with beat making, um, because the software is accessible, the rule, the, the knowledge is accessible um, because of the internet. And one of the things I think people forget now is even if you were into hip hop, like in the 80s and early 90s, there was no way for you to really learn about how it was made or what people's intentions were other than by hanging out with them. There were no books. There was no internet. There was no manual you could get. And you wouldn't even know where to buy a sampler. Like you could just walk into a store and buy, buy an SP-1200 or an MPC. You, you basically had to have a friend that that knew whatever the store was or the mail order catalog where you could where you could get that stuff. And even if you got it, you wouldn't know how to use it. And, and they weren't made for hip hop anyway. So it was like there are multiple levels. Like, first of all, you had to find out what sampling was. Um, you had to figure out where to buy a sampler and get the money to buy a sampler. You had to be taught technically how it worked, how to use it. And then you had to be taught sort of the general aesthetic rules of sampling in order to make a beat that people um, uh, thought was halfway decent. So you had to be part of the community, like just for practical reasons. There was no way to do hip hop if you weren't part of a hip hop community. Um, and that's long gone at this point. And it's interesting because I was, uh, I don't know if you know Emery Petschauer, he's a, um, He's a uh, he's a professor of education. He's also a hip hop DJ. Um, he wrote a book called um, uh, "Hip Hop Hip Hop and College Students' Lives," which was really good about how being versed in hip hop culture uh, affects student learning outcomes and things like that. And he's somebody. He's also a b boy. Like he's just an extremely knowledgeable about hip hop and also a great educator. So um, we were talking about this, and. Uh, 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 he was saying, you know, it is much more accessible. That's not necessarily a bad thing because on a certain level, I was thinking of it in terms of like, because, precisely because you had to jump through all these hoops, you, you had to become educated before you were in a position to be able to start to make statements. And I thought that was good from, from the standpoint of like the, 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 the health and, and strength of the art form. And I still feel that way, but he was saying, you know, on the other hand, it makes the art form accessible to a lot of people to whom it wouldn't have been accessible otherwise, including people who are from the communities where hip hop started. So, you know, he, he, he pointed out and he was absolutely right. You have to be careful about that because it's like you could get to a point where especially me as a white person from a suburban community is here saying that people, you know, 
even the black and brown people shouldn't have access to hip hop because it's making hip hop soft or something like that, which would be just an absolutely ridiculous position to take. So it, 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 it does make it more accessible to the general public, but it also makes it more accessible to, you know, young black and Latino people who are the, the people that's created it in the first place. So, you know, um, that, is, that is a, a very much a positive um, uh, aspect of that. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, like, Honestly, most days, like if I'm working on beats, like yeah. the majority of the time nowadays, it's just on an app that like, and so, like most apps are way more powerful than any MPC from like oh, 20 years ago. <laughs> like, no question. And, and that, that was the second part of what I was going to say that I forgot, which is now like half the students in my class are hip hop producers. And, and that's not weird because, you know, if you're interested in hip hop and you're interested in beats, why wouldn't you start making your own beats? You know what I mean? It's just it, there was so there was such a high barrier to entry before that you had to already be super committed to it. Like you weren't going to drop because you had to. Not only did you have to buy the the um, the sampler, but you had to have something to record it onto. You probably wanted to have turntables, and then you had to have the records too. So you're talking about probably like a three thousand dollar investment before you could even start to make beats. So. You had to either have a lot of money or share it with people or or just be super serious about it and save up your money. So now that barrier is a lot lower. So it changes the overall dynamic, but that's neither good nor bad. It's just different. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's just how the, the technology involves. Like, I remember when I was getting into beat making and stuff and I kind of did the whole thing. I was like, no, I'm going to learn like the original process, you know, create dig and then, you know, get out the MPC and then record it on the AC and then, you know, chop and do, and I, I did that just cause just to know that process, I think is really rewarding and satisfying, but nowadays it's just kind of like, uh, you know, I just hear a song on the radio and I'm like, all right, it's cool. It's right. And that's, that speaks well for you. I mean, that, that I, I, theoretically, if I were advising somebody, that's what I would tell them to do because that with any art form work through it, it's the same thing. Like, uh, you know, as a jazz player, it's useful to go back and learn how to play big band music before you start to play bop and learn how to play bop before you start to play post bop. And, and you know what I mean? You see how you understand how it evolves and you understand the thought process of the people who were doing it, the choices they were making. And that doesn't mean that you have to make the same choices, but the more you understand what the options are, what the resources were that were available and why people chose certain things over other things that's all information that you can use to feed your own creativity doesn't mean that you have to do what they do but you can consciously choose to not do what they do for a specific reason as opposed to just blundering into it so um i think i think that's a very valuable as an educational process um but to make music that way i i think if you choose it and that's who i choose it but I wouldn't necessarily feel like I should pressure somebody now to do it that way, not only for the reasons that I already talked about, but also because it, the mean, because the context is different, the meaning is different. Because like for me, when I was first, when I was writing the book, I started making beats um, and digging and playing them for people. And my beats were all terrible. I mean, I, I had no expectation that people would be like, wow, that's hot. But what I was doing was showing was was practicing the whole thing and and showing people what my progress was so that they knew how to relate to me uh, they knew like at what point <laughs> in my education where i was at so they they knew 
how much they needed to explain to me and stuff. But a lot of that at that time, the digging process in particular was like, look, I found this break. And, and like the, the actual beat was almost secondary. Like the beat was an excuse to play the record for somebody and to show them that you had found the record because you wouldn't be able to sample it if you didn't physically have the record in your hands. So, but that would mean nothing now. You know what I mean? Like if I sampled this record, uh, uh, Power of Soul by Idris Muhammad that we were just talking about, part of, do, part of do, the point of doing that was to show you that I had found that record. You know what I mean? So, that would that's stupid now because <laughs> I could have I could have sampled it off of YouTube or 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 you know a, a flack or MP3 or something like that. So even if I didn't, that's still different. Like even if I did dig the record and didn't didn't sample it off of some digital file or something, it's st it still doesn't mean the same thing because I could have sampled it off of, off a file. If you see what I'm saying, so there's no point in following those old-fashioned rules, not just because they're old-fashioned, but because the whole situation is different. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about how that kind of relates to kind of, like, authenticity within hip-hop, which has certainly changed, like, I think people recognize something as authentic nowadays, just if it's just kind of completely up to them, you know? If it's good, it's good, and if it's not, it's not. That's kind of just how it is. It doesn't need to follow a specific set of rules right and i think in theory people felt that way then but it had to follow the rules first just following the rules wasn't enough to get people to respect you if your if your beats were still crappy but and i think probably if you talk to people at that time and ask them that question they would say it it is more important to sound good than to follow the rules but ideally you should do both um and also well, the rules meant different things to people at that time. Like I was, I don't remember why, but I was just talking to somebody about this last week, which is, and this is in the book. Um, at that time, uh, you know, P Diddy, he was puffy then was like the, 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 the target for hip hop purists, right? Like that's not, he's just sampling old disco songs. There's no effort or whatever. And what was interesting, that was like the standard like backpacker hip-hop purist uh a gatekeeper attitude when i talked to hip-hop producers none of them said that they they what they all said was hip-hop comes from the dj and part of being a dj the essence of being a dj is playing the song that people want to hear at the right moment and if puffy's doing that then he's hip-hop and i can't criticize him he might do it differently from how i do it but he's he's doing the hip hop thing, so that's his preference, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's another difference too. That people thought of production as a form of DJing in those days. I don't think people think of it that way now. Mm -hmm. Well, especially with the kind of it is strange, especially with with beat making. I think you said on. It was another podcast that I, I think it was like the Heat Rocks podcast um, with uh, Oliver Wong. You, you said something that was just like all music production now is like hip hop production. Pretty much. And I, I have to say, to give myself a little credit, I did predict that. <laughs> um, 
you know, I could see that coming, but but it, I was surprised at the extent to which that became the case. Like because, and it's weird because, in fact, I think now it's that is so much the case that people don't even really realize that it ever was any different. Like in other words, like a rock artist integrating some hip hop idea into what they were doing was like, whoa, what's that? You know what I mean? Like it was really like using a breakbeat on a rock song, for example. People would be like, what? Now that's just that's what it is. Like you wouldn't even notice it, you know. Um, that's how how powerful those aesthetics are. I think. Yeah, it's just it's very strange to me. Like just the concept of like genre, especially when like with that like top tier pop music where it's like it's just kind of all hip hop, really. <laughs> like there's not like it's to, to try to separate it. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Partially, it's that pop music has opened itself up to hip hop influence. But partially, it's also that hip hop has become more uh, consistent with pop, too. Like, for example, I remember back in the day, if, if you had if you had like a straight up hip hop song made out of like a breakbeat and a, and a hard MC and everything, but you had somebody singing on the hook, people would be like, that's not hip hop. That's like some kind of weird hip hop R and B fusion or something like that. Like people were really serious about like hip hop being what it's supposed to be. Or like just the other day on the train, I was listening to um, South Bronx by JBC Force. If you're if you're familiar, um, and I was listening to that beat. It's one of my favorite, one of my all time favorite hip hop beats. And um, I realized it's just drums and a horn line. There's nothing else. Like there's one little guitar line that comes in and out, but there's no bass, there's no guitar or keyboards or anything like that. It's just drums basically. And then every bar or two bars, this little horn riff comes in. And that seems totally normal to me. I don't think you could get away with that now. Like that's not how hip hop works now. So like that idea, I think number one, it was very different and it um, reveled in its difference. Like it was so different from mainstream pop music that mainstream pop people couldn't even understand it. Um, that's definitely not the case anymore. <laughs> so I was just wondering, um, is there anything you're currently working on in terms of like writing or anything like that? I'm kind of looking for new ideas right now. So I did, I did the making beats book. Um, and then there was a 10th anniversary edition, which was still now almost 10 years ago, um, where I kind of, did it like an updated afterward. And then that led me into to writing um, my book about hip hop dance, which was called Foundation. Um, and I got into the dance through the music. That's another thing that those breakbeats that gave birth to hip hop music also were the, the, the records that people created hip hop dance to go along with. So those, you know, music and dance are, are, have always been very deeply connected to each other in hip hop. And I don't think people, I acknowledge that enough. So I, I think that's an important thing that hip hop music is, a, even if you're not dancing to it, you're feeling it physically or you're supposed to. So, and, and that's powerful. And that maybe that's a whole other discussion because I think people shy away from that because there's a history of people making these racist mind to body distinctions like European oriented art forms are about the mind and like Afro diasporic art forms are about the body that like that, that are like just really old, really racist stereotypes. 
But because of that, I think people overcorrect and are like, therefore, we cannot talk about the role of the body in, in, in any Afro-diasporic art form. Otherwise, we're opening up the door to these racist ideas. And I think you have to be careful about that, too, because there really are there really is a, a powerful mind body connection happening there that is very sophisticated. It, it's not consistent with any of those stereotypes, but it is there. So um, I think that that's important. So dance has become very important to me um, since then. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of right now looking around for what new kind of research areas um, uh, uh, to pursue. I have a couple of things coming out. There's a new um, Oxford history of hip hop dance that comes out or, or Oxford, sorry, Oxford Companion, Oxford Handbook of Hip Hop Dance Studies is what it's called, um, edited by uh, Imanikai Johnson and Mary Fogarty. And it's amazing. Uh, and they asked me to write an afterword to it. So that's a big, and, and what I did was I wrote essentially uh, this manifesto for the value of, like what I was just talking about, the value of dance to hip hop studies in general. But it's basically my manifesto for like, what I think hip hop dance or what I think hip hop studies should be going forward, because I think there's a lot that has still been left out of that of that field. Um, and this is the time to really expand it and think about what the parameters are and what it is that we're trying to do in hip hop studies. So it, it technically it's about hip hop dance, but it's really more about like, what is the future of hip hop studies look like? And I'm really proud of that. Um, and I also have a thing coming out in, um, Oxford has a series of, um, uh, African American literature and transition by decades. It, it's a series of books and each book covers a decade. So I wrote the hip hop chapter for the 1980s, um, uh, uh, chapter or a version of that. So those are the two things that I have coming out. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what to work on next, basically. All right, so that was Joe Schloss. Uh, that was a wonderful conversation. Uh, haven't talked to him in a while, so that was that was really nice. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to hopefully hear more, go to our um, just wherever podcasts are available on Spotify, on YouTube, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, um, and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all that all that jazz. So yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs>